Welcome to CLCC Online. We pray that this message draws you towards Jesus and strengthens your walk with Him. We believe that we were meant to do life in community. So if you live in the Fraser Valley area, we would love to get you connected into the family. Find everything you need at clcc.ca. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. I am Phil, our Alder Grove campus pastor. And today I have the privilege of starting a journey with us through the summer about the stories that transform us. You want to know what story I thought of first? Now, this isn't going to make me sound very holy or righteous or, or whatever, but I got to tell you about how the 96 hit Space Jam changed my life. <laughs> I've got a confession to make. I actually grew up a hockey fan. I was raised in Ontario, and like most Ontarians, I bled blue and white for most of my early years. In fact, everyone I knew except my dad, who I think being a contrarian decided to cheer for the Habs, like everyone rocked with the Leafs, and, and so did I. Matt Sundin, Ty Domi, like I was here for the whole thing. But here's the rub. I've never played ice hockey, even up till now. Not a day in my life, I've never played. Now I'm sure I'm sure I would have been a stud. I'm sure I would have been great. But maybe I'm not so sure I would have been Christian. But everything changed when I watched Space Jam. It opened my eyes to a sport that I could actually play. And sure enough, I became obsessed. I would start religiously shooting on the Raptors hoop in my driveway. I became a basketball Jones. I believed I could fly. I would record the soundtrack onto a cassette tape to play 24-7. A few years later, Vince Carter became a Toronto Raptor, you know, bringing his highlight dunks to Canada. And really, the rest is history. And this movie, Space Jam, about Michael Jordan and Bugs Bunny, you know, as silly as it sounds, and, and not very good, objectively speaking, in hindsight, it was transformative to my life. You see, I went from idolizing a sport that I'd never played. You know, I couldn't afford equipment for it, and I, I couldn't spend the weekends playing it away. And so therefore, like, my love for it never really translated into my practical life. But when I was introduced to basketball, this was a sport that I had real access to. It changed the way that I played and the way that I grew up and interacted with my peers and the world around me. You can talk to my wife about all of the hours-long conversations about basketball and, and basketball nights that I'd have with my friends. Now, mind you, this series isn't really about convincing you to abandon your love of hockey and finally see the light of the NBA. Although, I think if you gave me an hour, I might be able to make a compelling case. We actually want to talk about a deeper sort of transformation, right? And throughout the Bible... There is story after story after story that invites us to examine our lives and allow God to bring transformation to our innermost being. And so today, online family, we're going to be turning to the book of Judges. Now, Judges is this really interesting and kind of frankly dark period in the history of God's people. So we have uh, Joshua who took over from Moses and through Joshua's leadership, they've been given the promised land, right? And so now they have the task of establishing themselves into a nation. 
So the book of Judges starts out with a series of, go figure, judges who served as kind of a tribal leader of sorts that, you know, that God would equip to govern and lead his people. In short, it doesn't go well. And so to that point, we're going to be in chapter 13, where we're introduced to one of the Bible's most recognizable characters, Samson. I love the Samson story. Samson has got an incredible story. And it's not just because he's super strong, okay, guys? And so we're going to go through the highlights and mostly lowlights, if we're being honest, to help guide us through the narrative. We're not going to read all three chapters, but we should recognize that it starts with Israel doing evil and then being captured by the Philistine for 40 years. But then an angel of the Lord appears to a woman who was barren, couldn't give birth, and began telling her that she was going to have a son who would in fact save Israel from the Philistines. She and her husband are commanded to set him apart and, and, and demand that he adopt a particular set of vows, the Nazarite vow, which had certain restrictions in terms of lifestyle. Most noticeably, he's not allowed to cut his hair. So it turns out, as Samson got older, he had a really nice flow, but he didn't really care about most of his other vows. And so instead of spending his time and his energy helping God's people, he spends all of his time and his energy flirting with Israel's enemies. And it starts to get really juicy now. Lean in. He marries a woman from Philistine and then mocks her people with a riddle they can't solve. They don't like that very much. So what do they do? They give his wife away to his best man. You know, who needs reality TV when you've got tea like this? Am I right? Samson, reasonably angry, goes and burns all of their fields. The Philistines then kill his wife. Samson kills some Philistines. And then they capture our hairy friend. Samson used that capturing as a ploy to get close to a bunch of people. We read a thousand where God gives Samson super Saiyan strength and he kills them all with a jawbone of a donkey. Still with me? Because Samson, after all this, he doesn't learn his lesson. He falls in love with another Philistine woman, Delilah, who is then coerced and bribed into finding Samson's weakness, right? So night after night, she attempts to get him to crack. And out of his love for her, he finally reveals that his hair is the secret to his strength. Tragically, Delilah has Samson in his lap and she cuts off his hair in the night and the Philistines come and they capture Samson. They gouge out his eyes and they make him a slave. This is some like Game of Thrones stuff. So in a final scene, Samson is put on display at a huge celebration and he begs the Lord to help him out one last time. And God gave him the strength to topple the building that they were in, killing everyone, including himself. What a trip. What can we learn from this story? I think we should start with the idea of Samson. Because I think Samson is actually who Israel wanted. And if we're being honest, I think Samson is often who we want. He was a supernaturally strong dude. Think Hercules if that's helpful. If we're going through our like biblical metaphors, 
Samson isn't really a David-like archetype. He's actually more like Goliath. That's a strange way to think about it, but it's actually a good reference point. Because I know if I'm being honest, there are times where I'm sick of feeling like David. I'm sick of being the underdog. Where are our Goliath moments where God provides and strength and might to overwhelm our enemy, where everything is going our way? In fact, I think that thousands of years later, when Israel was anticipating the coming Messiah in the times of Jesus and just before Jesus, and to be honest, just after Jesus, they were looking for someone who is less Jesus-like, you know, serving and loving and more Samson-like. I think they wanted more smashing and killing in their savior. You could actually contend that no one, no one individual other than Samson had more potential, more giftings, and more natural resources. We repeatedly read throughout his story, you know, the spirit began to stir in Samson. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson. He was so gifted and yet he squanders it and achieves less than any other leader to date in Israel's history. You know someone like that who's extremely gifted, but it's so frustrating to watch them throw it all away. Maybe that's like an old man philosophy. (laughs) But I think Samson's story illustrates to us a whole bunch of things. The first is that this kind of power in the hands of humanity, even God's people, it proves too tempting to us to do things our own way. And this was a constant theme in Judges. We're going to see it time and time again, where Israel did what was right in their own eyes. We can have the right gifting, even supernatural power, but the wrong heart. I think normally we think about this reversed, about having the right heart. We have the heart. We want to love others. We want to change the world. And we're frustrated because we're waiting for the right gifts. You need to hear this, followers of Jesus. You are equipped to carry the gospel. God's spirit in you is enough. There are people who are relying on you right now. And the good news is, is that you have what it takes. What's the holdup then? We might be gifted from God, but we might not be taking our cues from him. We say we follow Jesus, but perhaps we've started following Samson without even realizing It's sad to think, but we actually in today, 2023, have so many resources and opportunities to spread the gospel, and so often we turn towards self-interest. This is very different from our example of Jesus, who used his strength and his gifts, not for his own benefit, but for the benefit of humanity. This story reveals to us that Israel as a country, and sometimes us ourselves, have become totally numbed to God's blessing and goodness. Samson is a reminder to us to keep a vibrant spiritual life. It forces us to ask some hard questions like, do we take forgiveness and new life for granted? That's a hard question. I remember in grade 10. This is not a hard question. I remember in grade 10, I had to make a choice. Which French class was I going to take? Was I going to take the academic French or the applied French? Now, I was really good in French class, but I decided to take the applied 
because it meant that I got to fool around with my friends. I was the only one of my friends who wanted to go academic. So sure enough, I spent that entire semester goofing off, not putting in any effort other than helping my friends cheat on their tests and generally being put off French. And I didn't take it in grade 11 or grade 12. So imagine my dismay when a couple of years later at a new school, the grade 12 French they were taking was basically the equivalent of my grade nine French. Had I applied myself and valued the course properly, I could have set myself up for so much more success and opportunity later. I think it's interesting to note as we examine the story of Samson, even right in chapter 13, that Samson's mother, an Israelite herself, part of God's people who, who moved mightily through Moses and Joshua and given them the promised land, didn't even seem to know their law, didn't even seem to know what the Nazarene code was. It's interesting that Samson's father tried to subject and capture the Lord like he was some pagan god. It was this common conception that you could compel spiritual beings to do your will if you gave them food, if they ate your food. In the most pivotal moment in Samson's life, he didn't even realize that the Lord had left him. How do we get there? In fact, the birth of Samson should remind us of Abraham and Sarah. Sarah was barren, right? And through whom God sealed his promise by giving them Isaac and by extension, a whole nation of God's people. Why didn't it remind them of that? Because they were spiraling out of control in their faith. What do we do to put, our to put in our lives that reminds us of the richness of God's favor? What do we do to protect our identity as children of the Lord Most High? Or are we more concerned with the things of this world? Is our view a little lower of earthly treasures and pleasures you know, that begin to seep in and dominate our thinking? Do we immerse ourselves in, in the biblical story? Do we create moments of thankfulness? These, among others, are discipleship opportunities to keep us anchored in dependence on God. I'm challenged by David, who would be the king that these judges couldn't ever be. He wrote in Psalm 34, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I think Samson would have benefited greatly from doing a little bit more of that. In fact, Samson is a prime example of Israel and us going their own way. Samson considered himself self-sufficient. And we know that because he clearly wasn't obedient. He's breaking all his vows left and right. But actually, this worldview makes a lot of intuitive sense to us because we live in an individualistic culture. We love self-empowerment. We want to make ourselves happy. We want to choose our own path, manifest our own destiny. We've trained ourselves and we're trained to do what's best for ourselves. And it's expected that one day we're going to be out on our own. In reality, this is actually a new kind of cultural phenomenon in world history which would generally mostly consider the needs and desires of the group as more important than personal desires. And spiritually speaking, this even pops up. 
we talk about a personal faith in Jesus. We run into some obstacles to loving our neighbors when we're culturally expected to put ourselves first in all things. We live individualistically. And when we do that, life becomes about what is right in our own eyes. And then we have this tension. I want to follow Jesus, but I also want to live life on my own terms. And one of them has got to give. I'm reminded of when Jesus warmed, warned us, not warmed us, warned us, you can't serve both God and money. You can't have two masters. Friends, we can't have it both ways. You can't live individualistically and for the Lord. Samson is telling us that we can have every advantage and still not deliver ourselves. God is the only one who can save humanity, not us. This story should stir, stir our hearts back towards obedience to God. I think the story of Samson also lays out what happens when our disobedience puts us into compromise. When we compromise, we hurt people and we hurt ourselves. When we try to live a life of faith on our own terms or a life on our own terms, but even a life of faith, when we try to do it, but we're still trying to get our own way, it creates all sorts of problems. And it's this tension. We can't serve two masters. So what are some warning signs that we might be living out of compromise? For Samson, it was, it was cutting off his hair. So what are some of the ways, some of the warning signs that we be, might be like, oh, like maybe we're cutting off our hair, so to speak. How can we tell if we're becoming self-sufficient or we're God-dependent? Here are some, and it's not exhaustive, but some cues here is like, we no longer heed godly counsel. If you find yourself dismissive or skeptical about scripture or the wisdom of godly people, or maybe you find yourself making decisions or coming to conclusions really based on your feelings, that might be a warning sign. Another one is we no longer practice gratitude. Everything becomes about getting what we deserve or feel entitled to. And there's this selfishness in, in, in involved in that. People might become rivals and not neighbors. You know, we're constantly trying to run, one up everyone or bemoaning what other have, others have in relationship to us. Another warning sign might be that we're consistently anxious or burnt out. And our problem isn't simply that we work too hard. It's that we want everything all the time. And so we push, push, crash, rinse, repeat. And that's all we know how to do because we think that we are our self-sufficient source of life and promise. Now, what's the fallout of this kind of life? Samson was forced into a lose-lose situation. He lost the woman he loved and the strength he took for granted. He was humiliated, blinded, and made a slave tough reality is this. Our compromise costs us. We don't get back those decisions. We don't get back those relationships, the time that our mistakes take from us. It costs us. And what's worse, what we gain from chasing our own way has no eternal value. We gain the world, but we lose our soul. In contrast, I think we should recognize that the life of faith also costs us. It invites us to give of our time, of our money, of our comfort, of our desires, and submit 
those to God. Jesus tells us to pick up our cross, to be self-sacrificial. The difference is, is that what we get back from God is way more than we, what we give. So we need to guard ourselves against self-sufficiency because it's a false bottom. It's a castle, a house built on sand. And the challenge is this, is that it's usually when we're at our strongest, it's when we're at the greatest danger of making this mistake. I think this is why Paul encouraged the church. But, I, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. I think we need to hear that today. We are not sufficient. We are not enough. But my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And that was something that self-sufficiency robbed Samson of. And yet, God is able to forgive and is faithful to Samson when Samson isn't. And this is a constant theme throughout this story from Samson's birth to his death, that God moves on behalf of his people even when they are completely faithless towards him. Perhaps you feel like Samson, not in the super strong way. Maybe you feel like you've become a slave to compromise. And the good news is this, is that God can redeem and bring freedom to the mess that we've put ourselves in, that our attempts at self-sufficiency, when we become trapped by those, that there is a pathway out. The gospel, I believe, shines in the story of Samson. Even when we fail God, even when we do what is right in our own eyes, God doesn't fail us. Even if we lose our sensitivity to the spirit, we can be made new. Trust in God and his ways. Return to the Lord and we will rediscover the richness and depths and wholeness of his presence and it will be with you. Why don't we pray together? Lord, we thank you for the story of Samson. And the story of Samson is so compelling because we discover in a lot of ways that we are more like Samson than we care to admit. We compromise. We want to do things our own way. And we get in a whole bunch of messes. We have so much potential and promise to live a life of meaning and faith and love throughout our families and our communities, but we waste it. And God, we're sorry for that. I pray that you would revive a vibrant spirituality, that your presence would be close to us, that we would put your praise on our lips at all times, that we would be dependent on you and begin to experience something not just temporary, not just something of this earth, but we want a peace of your kingdom. We want something eternal. And I pray that we would catch a desire for that and it would light a fire in our hearts to be dependent on you instead of being self-sufficient because we know where that ends up. We need something greater. We need something deeper. We need something more transformative. So we invite you into our lives today anew and afresh. Thank you 
for being faithful to us even when we haven't been faithful to you. We love you. Amen. We'll take care, church. We love you. Thanks for joining us. If you are looking to get connected, we are one church in multiple locations. Our Aldergrove campus meets at Parkside Elementary School Sundays at 1030. Our Abbotsford campus has three services each Sunday, 830, 10, and 11.30. We would love to see you at one of our in-person gatherings. If you would like to financially support us, you can always give at cscca give. See you later.